for so many of our golfers on the old course, it was their one chance to play the course. You just see the patterns in this really interesting way. It's hard not to start seeing the patterns and seeing all of these like mental game things. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. Got my partner in crime, Matt Cermak, with What's me. What's up, Ev? Good to be back. Are you fired up? Train's rolling down the tracks. Evan. We just had probably one of the more meaningful conversations we've had in a while. You're going to feel yeah. this in the feels, and it's going to make you fall in love with the game again. I can guarantee that. But before we get to this interview with Oliver Horovitz... If your golf game's off the rails, if you're sick of riding the struggle bus, you come to the right place. Part train helps frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again, because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. This episode encompasses that perfectly. The part train unpacks the mental game with PJ Torpo's best-selling authors like Today with Ollie, CEOs, sports psychologists, everyday golfers like you and me and more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track. Thank you to our friends at Roback. This episode, like every episode, is presented by Roback Activewear. I'm literally, this is literally my uniform. I'm wearing their hoodie and their joggers. And I literally wear them every day. You're wearing a Q-zip and a polo and you <laughs> literally wear them every day. It's what we do. It's what we do. <laughs> so go to rowback.com, enter the code train, get yourself 15% off. They just dropped new styles for Mardi Gras. They're dropping new hoodies. I actually, they just dropped a two color tone heathered hoodie. And I know I have oh. like 12 of them, but I might have to snag one of those too. So I'm excited for the St. Patty's polo. There's also St. Patty's doing- stuff. Whatever holiday is coming up, guys, they're going to drop something. They even dropped the Tiger yeah. for Tiger's return. They're having Tiger Q-Zips all red. So go to roback.com, enter the code train, get 15% off. Um, if the code doesn't work, you've probably used it before. So tap the link in our bio at the part train on Instagram. It'll auto apply or enter a new email if you have to borrow a a friend's just, email, borrow your uncle's do email, and do whatever you have to do to get that discount. So thank you to Roback as always. This episode with Oliver Horvitz, best-selling author of American Caddy at St. Andrews, one of my favorite books of all time. If you haven't read his book about spending summers in St. Andrews, caddying as the only American there, staying with his uncle right off the course, like unbelievable feel-good book. It's what made me want to go to St. Andrews. And Oliver is one of the best guys we know. He's yeah. been on the show now three times. He's actually the first, we said this at the beginning of the interview, he's our first interview we've ever done. So if you want to get a kick out of this show, go back to first episode guest. six. First guest. Episode six was with Oliver Horovitz about his book. And we've had him on talking about his adventures. I think this episode just reaffirmed that golf should be an adventure. Yeah. Every round is an adventure. Every round is an opportunity. What did he say? He learned from an old Scottish caddy. It's not about what you shoot. It's about collecting after dinner stories. And if you do that, I guarantee you'll probably have better scores. That's the funny thing. But this was a really powerful episode about his time in Nepal, the Nepali spirit, his amazing new article that he wrote on Golf Digest, where all you have to do is Google Golf Digest Nepal and it'll pop up. But we've learned a ton from him being a caddy to a good player himself traveling around the world. I think we got a lot of great nuggets for our listeners that can help them enjoy this game. Yeah. I mean, we get into it. You got to say towards the end, I mean, Ali's he feels the, the spiritual connection to the game. Right. And that really comes through on his travels. Yeah. I mean, what he, <laughs> these stories about Nepal and, you know, monsoons and 
climbing up mountains and playing Mud in the slides, highest mudslides, the highest altitude in the world, and spending time with these people. That's what he does too, Ev. When he travels, he just gets into the culture and then and he ties golf into that. I, he's an amazing guy. And he like we us three really bond over, you know, enjoying this game, finding different ways to enjoy this game, being grateful, and um sharing all of our ideas and experiences. So it was great to see Ali. It's been a minute. I think you guys are going to love this episode. If you guys don't love the game more after listening to this episode, I don't know what to say. Yeah, you're going to fire up. You're gonna have to fire up more par trains, that's for sure. So thank you guys, as always, for hopping aboard. If we've added any value, if you feel anything from this episode, give us a review at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It means the world. Tell a friend also means the world. Give us a follow at the par train, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok posting new stuff every day to help you get out of your own way and enjoy the ride. But no matter what, Serm, no matter how much that altitude's hitting you down, how bad you hit the shot in front of someone, how embarrassed you might feel, what do they got to do? Just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. Thanks, guys. Oliver Horvitz, this is a full circle moment. Our first guest, actually, I don't think you know this, Ollie. You were our first guest we've ever had on the par train, episode six, six years ago. It is my pleasure to welcome you aboard the train for episode 228. It's good to be back. You guys have been uh, rocking and rolling for a while now. 228 is pretty impressive. We never thought we'd get to a million downloads after we started, but you just got to keep chugging. You got and the you train moving. Where, you never know where the train's going to take you. So it's good to see well, you. It's good, good to be on the first stop. And uh, and this will definitely not be the last stop. So it's, it's For sure. good to be back. So, Ali, one of the things sometimes I like to start, I jump right in. This is a bit of a deep question. But one of the things I'm most fascinated with as it relates to you know our mind's impact on what our life experience is, is how two people can be having the same external experience yet have two wildly different experiences inside or how they view that experience, right? So I want to start with you. You had one recently. Someone else was smiling during a potential landslide. Your Jeep was potentially sliding off the cliff and you were gripping the Jeep for your life. Talk about that. Talk about how someone could possibly be smiling when almost losing their life and you're hanging on for for dear life. Talk about that. Yeah, we... Went to Mustang Golf Course, which is now the highest golf course in the entire world, for the opening tournament of this course during the height of monsoon season. So this is like in Nepal. You don't generally go trekking in Nepal in June or July or August. That's like torrential rains every day. And especially where the golf course is in Upper Mustang and like the western part of Nepal, that's like landslide territory and it's torrential rains. And we went up to this course from Pokhara to Lomanthang, which is a two-day Jeep ride in this caravan of 10 Jeeps. And it's like muddy roads. It's landslides all the time. And generally, you don't want to do that in August. But that's when this opening tournament was. And that's when everyone was going to go do it. And so I'm you know, along for the ride. I'm the only American in this group of 36 playing in the top of the World Golf Classic. And within a day of going up, it gets gnarly there. The good news is if you go in like April or May or September or October, it's perfect roads. It's easy driving. It's all great. But yeah, we made it a lot gnarlier by, by going in the height of monsoon season. I mean, what are, our motto on this show, Ali, is to enjoy the ride. You know, 
would you say you were enjoying that ride? <laughs> like it, it, at what point are you a little scared? You know, this is kind of what you do. You're, we want to talk about the adventure golfer, but there's no turning back, you know, right. Talk about this. Yeah. It's a case of you just trust everyone else around you. I will say that we had a professional driver in each Jeep of the 10. And these guys are so freaking good. They're doing this trip from Pokhara to Lomanthang basically every other day. And they do it in like one crazy 11 hour nonstop stretch. So they're really, really good. And you'll have these like, sometimes like it felt like a thousand foot drop off directly left of our car. And they're like, they've done it a hundred times. They don't care. They're good. And so, you know, I was like, I was just trusting them. I was like, well, they seem good. And they've done it a lot. Like our Jeep driver and our, yeah, our, our Jeep driver in our particular Jeep, we nicknamed him uh, Speed Racer because he was the fastest mm. of all the drivers. He hated being passed. If anyone tried to pass him, he took it as a personal insult and he glared at them and then sped up even faster. He was literally the fastest driver I've ever been in a car with. And so uh, that was part of the experience. He got us there really, really quickly. <laughs> yeah. So Ali, we were talking off air. And one of the things that I was most excited to, to have you back on is, like Matt said, you're known for exploring all of these different adventures within golf, right? And you've had so many different experiences. Last we talked, I think your handicap was around a two or a three. Is that still the case? Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. I am so rusty now. In the tournament, I shot a 46, which was like- No, there was no hard. automatic two putts. Come on, on the greens up there. You're right. <laughs> Looked a little bumpy. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm not playing enough right now to to get back down to where I, like, to where I want to be, but- I don't know. I, I'll play a couple days in a row on a trip like everybody else and I'll get back to where you know where I was. But when I was 18, I think that was probably my best. That was when I was like freshman at University of St. Andrews, yeah. doing my gap year there, played every single day. And I was like a 1.8 then and I am I'm definitely not right now. Okay. So before we dig in, maybe we start there, Ollie. So you were down to a 1.8. Tigers talked about this, right? Like it's it's easy to constantly compare yourself versus your best. Is that tough for you when you go out and play now? How do you navigate trying to enjoy it while also trying to be the guy that you were? How do you rectify that? Yeah, it was definitely difficult in the first couple of years after I stopped playing quite as much and I'd get really frustrated on the course and I would just be like, I, I was so much better when I was like 15. What the hell am I doing? And I think so many people can relate to that because life gets in the way. You, you're working more. You're not right next to a golf course, maybe. Being in New York City where I live, it's like tougher to get out there. Although there are many golf courses in New York City that are all fantastic. There's like eight or 10 public courses within like 30 minutes of the city. But for me, it became a lot more about like, I'm out in a beautiful green place with people I care about talking about life for five hours or in New York City, it could be six hours for the round, it switches a little bit. And then and then for me, you know, like I would end up playing the bulk of my golf in the summertime in St. Andrews, because I caddied there on the old course for 11 summers. It started becoming even more special. You know, I'd, I'd caddy five days a week and then go play for the sixth day. And it was like, it took on this other purpose for me, which was just like, oh, this is the time I feel absolutely the happiest. And so for a lot of these trips now where I've gone around the world and found golf in some really unexpected places, maybe for me, it's like, it's just another way of being like, well, I'm not going to be a professional golfer. Like I wasn't good enough. I'm not shooting a 75 every time now. 
every time I uncover another layer of what golf can be in this different part of the world, for me, that's really fun. And for whatever weird reason makes me really, really happy. And just meeting golfers in other parts of the world who love the game as much as I do, as both of you do, that's what for me golf has become in the last 10 years, which is I accept it's super weird and different, but like when I meet like 50 really obsessive golfers at Royal Nepal Golf Club who probably play eight times a week because they freaking love it. And one of them loans me his driver to go up to Everest Base Camp and I hit his like Callaway 9.5 driver off of Everest Base Camp. Like, I'm like, okay, that's that's something. That's something. It became my own little like holy grail of golf is trying to find other other cool golf stories. And that's what makes me happy. Well, Ali, I mean, I love what you just said because I was thinking about this idea of being an adventurous golfer. And that's what you are. And I, you just kind of went into it there. It's got to be very freeing, right? Because like you said, it gives you another purpose, probably some sort of higher purpose. And when you do go out and play, you're not really thinking so much about score, you know, yeah. or, or a little less than you did, right? And so whatever happens, happens. And you may surprise yourself, good, bad, or indifferent. But I don't know. It's such a lesson for all golfers, you know, finding that purpose, finding that happiness, because as we know, as much as we love golf, it can take us into some dark places. So you have yeah. found a way to build on that a little bit. It's just, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I like embedding in, in different golf places and, and, and just seeing who I meet. And so it's like, when we think of the, you know, the mental game, I, and we can talk about this later, but I instantly think of Academy and six Dunhill championships in St. Andrews, and then also Carnoustie and Kings Barnes. It's like the, the UK equivalent of the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. So you have to be around all these pros. And we had, you know, I'd be in, in the group with, uh, we had Ernie Elson in our group one day. We had Roy McElroy. We had Simon Dyson one day. DJ was in our group once. I would caddy for Huey Lewis every year because it's a kind of celebrity Pro-Am. And you think of just like what that game looks like. You know, definitely want to talk about that later. Of just what the pro, like how the pros think their way around the course, but then also getting to caddy for 11 summers and caddying for, I'd, I'd say the average is like eight to 15 for handicap of the guys and ladies that would come to the old course. I'd say like, if I had to pick a, you know, your like your standard, probably be like 12 and you start seeing all these patterns. Like for so many of our golfers on the old course, it was their one chance to play the course, but for all the caddies, it's one round in this ever-growing pattern of seeing shots go into the fifth green and seeing how those bounce. And there's something, and I'm sure you, 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 you'll experience this on like playing your home course. You just see the patterns in this really interesting way. And you start thinking big picture as you're caddying hmm. for your amateur golfers. And so it's hard not to start seeing the patterns and seeing all of these like mental game things that we can use to help our golfers. There's one thing you'll hear ad nauseum from your Scottish caddy on the old course. And that's after any shot, no matter how bad the shot was, you'll hear the next phrase invariably, we'll get it. We'll get that. <laughs> you'll hear yeah. that every time. It's true. Because it's true. Like yeah. there's almost no out of bounds on the old course. I'll be able to find pretty much any shot you hit. You can hit it on most holes on the old course, even two golf courses to your right. And it's still in play because there's so many courses crammed into this little space. So we'll get it. So for the caddy, what you just did is gone. And I'm sure you've heard this before from some of the mental coaches you've had on the game, but it's so true. As a caddy, I don't care what you just did. It happened. 
And now we're going to be in the rough and we're going to have like 170 out and it's a new ball game right now. So it's one thing I think that you can absolutely put into practice as, as a golfer is literally whatever you did. Great. We're in the next shot now. Like caddies never care about what you just did. I'm already thinking about how I'm going to get you close to the green for an up and down for a par. So it's one thing. So it's like staying in the present. But you know what's funny also, about that, Ollie, real quick, is I yeah. feel like the average golfer, especially at a place like St. Andrews, which is such a bucket list, once in a lifetime experience, I think a lot of golfers, a lot of them don't have caddies very often. And I think they actually get in their own head about like making you work harder or yeah. thinking that you're annoyed because they're constantly having to look for balls. And maybe that's sometimes the case, you know, but I think most times we create that in our own head which creates more tension and more fear and, yeah. you know, more shame. But is that actually the case? Probably not. I mean, and I'm absolutely guilty of that. Every time I, I have a caddy, I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry for yeah. what <laughs> you're apologize. about to experience. Like I'm so, I can, it's very hard for me to not be like, Oh, if I don't cook this, I'm just making his or her life terrible. But no, the truth is like, there's very few things we, we we want as a caddy and one is just like being nice like be nice to us <laughs> buy us lunch at the turn and like have fun those are the three things we really care about and the truth is like what you shoot it's about whether you had especially on the old course it's about like whether you actually enjoyed the experience because that's it's so important this next one is like more like a course management thing but i also i also think it's a good mental thing and that's the idea of the hero shot and avoiding the hero shots like mm. so many times looking back at all the rounds I caddied on where we would get into trouble if I had like a 12 to 15 handicap was them going for a hero shot. And so often I'd be like, Hey Ben, you hit this three wood a lot. And second shot into, you know, the 14th or the fifth par five. And I'd be like, no, 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 I really don't. I don't hit it that much. If I can try it if you want. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're not trying. It. And so often, right. We get on the course and we hit the shot we think we should be hitting, right? We think we should try to get close to the green in two on a par five because we saw every PGA Tour player pull out the three-wood. Guess what? If you're not comfy with a three-wood, please don't hit it because we're not trying to break par on the on the course that day. I always say at the start of the round, guys, this is like one of the things I, I will often ask down the first, what is, your, what is your comfort shot? What's the shot? What's the club that is your bread and butter go-to shot? Oh, I really hit my six iron really good. In my head, I'm like, great. Guess what? We're freaking going to that a lot today. And it doesn't matter if you're leaving yourself a full third shot into a par five on the on the fifth, on the old. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're playing to your comfort level. And I think that is like, that's just, you know, that's something that that we we really get sort of stuck in when we're playing. Of course, we try to do those hero shots. That's another yeah. thing that, that comes up. Ali, a good caddy helps a player slow down. Would you agree? Because it's it's so often, especially in tough situations, whether you're in the trees or you're indecision, right? Things speed up, right? Or you're or you're just having a hard time processing the moment, maybe ultimately having a hard time making the right decision. So yeah. Evan and I have been talking about this a lot, the power of vocalization. And as a caddy like you and a darn good one, you've got to know when to, you know, talk to your player, not talk to your player. But I think we all can learn from caddies, good caddies, about proper vocalization, about talking things, about slowing down. Oh, it's right? such a good point. 
That is probably the biggest thing that we realize every year the Dunhill makes its way back to St. Andrews and we come off the summer of catting for some like very good amateurs, obviously, right? Like, cause every, I would say every 10, 20 rounds will get a golfer coming through who's who scratch or like plus one or maybe a club pro comes through. But overall, again, it's that eight to 15 is our sweet spot for handicaps. But then you get the pros rolling back in for the Dunhill. And the first thing that is so obvious is how slow everything is with the pro game. I describe it to people as name any tour pros out there. Everything they do is slow. It is a slow waltz. The whole week is a slow waltz. Walking between shots, talking to their tour caddy, reading putts, everything is slow. And they never get up and down. They are the opposite of us as golfers, right? And I'll tell you another thing. So 17, right? The road hole. It's like a very scary tee shot. And it just gets scarier because in the in the British Open and the you did. I mean, <laughs> hey, it's, I've seen a lot worse than that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. For those of you who don't know the road hill, go go look it up on YouTube. But you literally have to hit over a shed on your tee shot, and you hit from what is actually the town driving range. You're basically hitting from out of bounds in a in a funny way. But when I've seen pros who are pushing that tee shot right, and it's actually like unclear if it's going to be in bounds or not. If we hit one of those shots, we'd be like, oh my god, oh my god, stay in, stay in. No, it's almost like they know they've just messed up and they're sort of like, I didn't do my job. Whatever happens, happens. So actually, like I've seen this so many times, even on 14, when there's another really scary tee shot on the old from the pro tees, they hit a shot that's like 50-50 staying in or not. It's like they don't even react to it because it's just like whatever happens, happens. And maybe I'll make double and it's not the end of the world. That is so freaking important. Because we can really use that. And again, this is not, it's not new info, right? They're like, try not to get up and down. But I'm telling you, every single pro golfer has that mental attitude with a few exceptions, obviously, right? The John right. Roms, whatever. But like with but, very But he's got exceptions. a short memory, right? He might get fiery, yeah. but he can let it go. That's right. Right? Yeah. That is like the the number one thing that that is striking about seeing seeing pros and walking inside the ropes with them is just how slow everything is. And and like, man, can we learn from that? And any 15 handicapper can learn from that. Well, Ali, you know, we actually did an entire episode dedicated on the mental side of playing an elite mm -hmm. golf course or a bucket list golf course. Oh, and that's cool. I'm sure you've seen it a million times where there could have been. And by the way, I should say, shout out to Ali. When I went to Scotland by myself, Ali was a huge resource for me figuring out because I could only play four times. What are the places I go? And you helped me out. And it was an amazing, it may be one of the best four days of my life, um, um, especially awesome. on the old course. But one thing I've learned is a lot of planning goes into it. A lot of time, a lot of mm -hmm. money, a lot of anticipation. Yep. And then you're there and you're in it and you know, you're in it. And I'm just curious, you know, a lot of times you've caddied those people. And you've done it yourself with stories you're writing and experiences you've had. What have been some go-tos for you to help mm -hmm. either your player or yourself come back to the moment and enjoy it? I know we talked about it a little bit before, but just when you factor in all of those external things and those expectations that can really make you feel like I literally planned all year for this and I feel like I can't hit anything. How yeah. do you salvage it? How do you go back to enjoying that moment. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. It's a great point. 
it comes up so many times on the first to the old course. Hey, Oliver, got to break 80 today. I got to break 80 today. Okay, John, what's your handicap? 12. Like, John, par 72. First of all, like in my head, I'm like, oh boy. But (laughs) so often you pay the money, you get over there. All your buddies are texting you. Hey, how's it going? You playing yet? And what everyone comes in with, if they're not careful, is I just got to put up a number. And I'm going to tell everybody what I shot. And there was so much pressure on what you shoot. And this old Scottish caddy told me a story about what he told one of his players once, which I think is so, uh, it's so the right way to think about it. So to one of his guys, he said, it's not what you shoot out there. It's collecting after dinner stories. And it's so true. It's like, it doesn't matter ultimately what you shoot on the old course. It's about those moments it's about collecting after dinner stories. And then there was this amazing moment from that same round where this guy he told it to was this 80-year-old father there with his son. And they had, I think it was the 11th green, they had a putt, two putts nearly on the same line. It was like the son went first, he had a 10-footer, and then the dad was behind him with like a 20-footer. The son putted first, made it. Dad puts behind him, also a birdie putt, makes it. And he turns to the cat and he was like, John, that's my after dinner story. <laughs> Love, Love that. that. And so for me, if I'm out there and I'm seeing it and I see their uh, my golfers get intense and they're really focused on it. And this is kind of funny because this, you know, this even relates to the title of the pod, but you get you try to get them on the par trip. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like seriously, like the best, and I and I've talked about this with so many of my caddy friends. I'm like, the best thing you can do if you have a golfer who's super frustrated is I want to get him or her on the par. As soon as possible. It is unbelievable. Oh, Ali, it's your example. I think maybe yeah. par five, hit a good drive, 12 handicap. I'm going to hit this three wood, right? And I'm going to try to get it up there. And it's like, do you think you could make eagle on this all? Probably yeah. not. Birdie would yeah. be amazing, but you know, par, building the strategy around par, right? Yeah. Again, we're not, we're <laughs> not trying to shoot 72. Some people are for sure. But let's say stock 12 handicap. We're not trying to shoot 72. And, you know, especially because the old course, if you're downwind on the front, it can play super short and super easy. And I cannot get, gra- get greedy, right? People. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the, and the tourist tees can be a little forward sometimes. And like, before you know it, I've had so many 17 handicappers who shoot a 38 on the front and oh boy, then you turn into the wind on the back, which can play real long. And we're just in like nervousness village or just like 55. chaos city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it's, it's unbelievable what a par can get any golfer just to be like, okay, the bleeding stopped. We're back in. And you both know the old courses greens are massive. They are humongous. The yeah. the shared fifth, 13th green is front to back. It's over an acre. Or it's just around an acre. It's like almost a hundred yards from front to back. So you can really, if you don't get suckered into like those crazy pins, which they'll often put on the sides of greens. If you just go center of the green and two putts and get a par, it will just settle my golfer down every time. Literally, you are just trying to build up the pars. And I think actually to go back from core strategy back to the mental game, that is a really cool way of doing it, of not trying to force it, but just trying to let the pars build up. I think that is a really good secret. And, and even if you're on the old for the first time, don't get fancy. Don't get dangerous. We're not, we don't need to make birdie. Like, let's just hit some greens in regulation and play away from the danger and put it on the green and just and like take away the the chance of a seven or an eight. And it is amazing how quickly those pars add up. 
All right, guys, stay seated. This train's going to make a quick pit stop. Keep those seatbelts fast, and then we'll get the train right back on track. I've got something for you guys that I think you're going to absolutely love. I don't know about you. I've been talking to different friends, and I realized it's pretty rare for people to have a go-to golf shoe. People have go-to equipment brands for their putters, their irons, their wedges, drivers, etc. But golf shoes, you kind of jump around a little bit. And I've been looking for a brand that I can stick with. And I was honestly a little bit surprised when I realized it and I tried it on. But now I'll never go back. Olakai Golf Shoes. They call it Aloha Golf. It's all about same thing, enjoying the ride, Aloha Golf, staying chill, staying happy, enjoying it all. But more importantly, it's the most comfortable golf shoe I've ever worn. So you guys might know Olakai for the sandals and their regular footwear. And, you know, I've got like the flattest feet in the world. I could never find sandals that fit my foot. The only sandal that's ever fit my foot are Olakai flip-flops. So I'm seeing so many people that wear Olakai for everyday stuff. When they hear they had a golf shoe, they ran straight to Olakai.com and got themselves these pairs. I personally love the white leather shoe. It's super classic. They've got gray, brown, et cetera. And they've also got these other styles that are kind of cool and unique. There's some brown leather mixed into some navy canvas. And it's a little bit more eclectic and kind of a trail outdoor feel. And it's pretty cool. I have those two. And the heel, best part, the heel on all their golf shoes flap down, just like the regular footwear. Go to our show notes of this episode or go to our Instagram account at the part drain. Tap the link in bio. You'll see an Olakai link in there. Tap that link because if you click that link, you will get free shipping on your order. Highly recommend this, guys. Remember, I tested them back in April and walked 36 holes at Bannon Dunes without breaking them in, and I had zero blisters. I've had shoes that are broken in that I've worn for months that gave me blisters at Bannon Dunes. These didn't. So tap that link in our show notes of this episode or go to our bio at The Par Train and get yourself the most comfortable golf shoes I've ever worn. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, Ali, you know what this makes me think of? We've been talking to you of, you know, I think a great expert in people and stories as a caddy as a great player yourself but i think we also need to remember the power of being a writer i once read this quote of i think it was a comedy writer that said i don't know how non-writers go through painful experiences because every time i do i think to myself this could be one hell of a story and actually that is a quote that i've remembered for a long time as my own tool and it's something that actually Julian Edelman told Tom Brady at halftime of the Atlanta Patriots Super Bowl of this mm-hmm. could be one hell of a story. It's kind of a way to stay in it. It's kind of a way to lean into what matters, which is your point, the after dinner stories. And a lot of times, what do we want as a golfer, right? We want one shot, one memory to take with us that we can remember. And if that's all you want, I think we're you're probably going to get that. You just have to stay patient, right? Talk about the power of of story as a way mm-hmm. to to stay in it and enjoy an experience. Yeah, I think that takes all the pressure off you. If you if you go away from I got to shoot a seventy eight to I just want to hit some good shots out there, that's going to calm you down so much. And like another thing of the old course is like it just bakes in the drama in those closing holes. So no matter what you're doing you're going to get to 16, 17, 18, and you're going to be right front and center in like one of the most epic finishes in golf, right? Which is super cool because 
doesn't matter like what you've just done. You're back in and you got chances on 17 to be your, again. I don't want to say be a hero, but you got a chance on 17 to like hit those shots that you're going to remember forever. Um, you got a chance, like it's going to be easy to make a par in 18 if you just play smart. That's another really nice trick to, to take some pressure off. By the way, my favorite golf quote, I think it's Bing Crosby. I might be wrong. I think it was Bing Crosby who said, I would have quit golf like long ago, but I have so many sweaters. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> but I like that. You know, like again, going back to Nepal for a second, because that's fresh in my mind, because I, you yeah. know, I just uh just had that adventure. The Nepali golfers talk about story. The, everyone I've met in Nepal, I've been there four times now, each time to go and do golf stories about the golf scene there, because they have seven golf courses. They have at this point, I think 1,200 golfers. Seems like not a lot. They only There's 31 million people in Nepal. So not a ton play golf, but again, they're voracious golfers. And every Nepali I've met on my travels over there, and I've met so many nice Nepalis in New York now as well, a lot of whom actually play golf. They just have this wonderful mindset that I think is instructive, not just for golf, but also, also for life. And I've tried to use a lot of what I've met and seen in my Nepali friends in just as a way to live my life. There's such a sort of being in the moment and living life now and grabbing life by the horns that Nepalis really, really, really do. Like, again, it's a very Nepali spirit thing to say, why not have the world's highest golf course in Nepal? Like, of course we should have it. We have Everest. We should also have the world's highest golf course. So why not build a course at 15,239 feet in what was formerly a forbidden kingdom, not open to foreigners until 1992? Of course, we're going to have the opening tournament in the middle of monsoon season. We're going to take Jeeps up in the middle of landslides to go there. And every time I'm there, it's very refreshing because, and again, like both of you, everyone listening has experienced it. It's been a really tough couple of years for everybody, right? With the pandemic and so much of that time was, was, was stuck not doing the things we wanted to do, not seeing the, the people we wanted to see. And I think for Nepalis, that being cooped up was really tough as well because they love the outdoors in Nepal. They love being out and, and going on adventures. So this was a trip that I didn't realize how much I needed until I got back there. And Nepalis are brave. I would say like, if you're thinking of the of the two professions on the world stage that Nepalis are, are best known for, one is as the climbing Sherpas, right? On Mount Everest, you think of these like incredibly brave climbing Sherpas who are risking their lives on the Lhotse face to put Dalbad on the table for their families. And they're in all kinds of weather up there. That is a profession that is so dangerous and they are so proud of their skill and they are so brave. And the second one, it's called the Gurkhas. It's a fighting regiment attached to the British army. You might not know this, but Prince Harry, when he was serving in Afghanistan, was embedded with a Gurkha unit. He invited Gurkha soldiers to the royal wedding. And he said, whenever you're with the Gurkhas, you know you're in safe hands. They are mm -hmm. considered the bravest fighting unit throughout the world. There was a famous general, I think I put this in the article, and he said, if someone says he's not afraid of dying, he's either lying or he is a Gurkha. And so it still continues to this day. <laughs> and it, it, for me, it's very touching because like, talk to any American soldier, who has, who has been around the Gurkhas, talk to British army soldiers who've been around the Gurkhas, every single time, it's that bravery. 
comes up. Mm. So again, you think of you think of the Gurkhas, you think of the climbing Sherpas on Everest, and then obviously there's there's tons and tons of doctors and lawyers and and business people in Nepal, obviously. But it's that spirit of bravery and kindness. And for me, it's how I want to live my life. Right? It's about trying to fill it with some adventure. It's trying to fill it with kindness and about being with people you care about. And for me, that is golf. That's being around people you love in a beautiful green place, talking about life. For fun. well, and Ali, I mean, you're describing the community too, right? In Nepal, you said yeah. the whole round felt like a festival. Locals were mm. roaming the fairways, and I'm yeah. sure maybe that took you back to Scotland about maybe the dogs running around or you know. But this is a next level. I mean, talk about yeah. that. I mean, it's, it's just we don't. Get oh, to, it was it nobody was, gets to experience that on a golf course. Yeah, the course is 30 minutes above the capital of Upper Mustang. And again, Upper Mustang, it is a wild, rugged place. This is not Kathmandu. Most Nepalis in Kathmandu have never been to Mustang. And so it's a very revered, romanticized place. It's For us, it's like the Yukon or the Grand Canyon for the first time. It has a real mystique to it. So the fact that there's a golf course in Upper Mustang, 30 minutes above Lomanthang is itself really incredible and just so part of the mystique of going to play. I hope every listener who's at all interested in visiting Nepal thinks about making a trip to the world's highest golf course. It is truly an adventure. But the residents of Lomanthang, it's about 900 people living in this city. It's got a 600-year-old royal palace, whitewashed walls all around the city. There are very rarely seen snow leopards that wander the, the area. And the residents had never seen golf before. So suddenly 36 golfers in this tournament, all in dry joys, doing practice <laughs> swings in the middle of the street as like cows are walking past. We roll in, we're like a traveling circus. And so they were super, super interested in what the hell we were doing. And it reminded me of when I went to Everest Base Camp and I brought a golf club just to hit a golf ball from Everest Base Camp to be stupid. Just everyone was looking at my golf club and being like, what is that? Like all of the Sherpas that we met were trying to swing the golf club. It was super cool. But the residents of Lomanthang would come up to the golf course and they watched us in the opening tournament. And it was hundreds of people from the, the city seeing golf for the first time. And that was really, really cool because I was just seeing how much the kids were loving it. Everyone was taking turns trying to putt. One guy was hitting with a selfie stick. Pretty, pretty funny. <laughs> So it it really did Everything, feel like this. All this, kinds of this, stuff. And he hit it. Yeah. He could hit it. It felt like a, it didn't go very far with the selfie stick. Yeah, was, I wouldn't uh, think so. They can make some improvements if you're trying to hit a ball. But it was uh, it was fun. It was like, it was like, it's really fun to see people experiencing golf for the first time, right? Well, Ali, it makes me think of this excerpt from your article. I'm going to read it for a second because I think that it was the most golf quote I've ever read. And it sums up everyone listening is going to be like, yeah, that's me. And I, I'm just going to read it. So you said Dr. Rita Thapa, 81 years old, a Royal Nepal Golf Club member and the tournament's honorary starter. Thapa was a former World Health Organization director and pioneer mm -hmm. in Nepal's public health, was making this trip despite altitude concerns from the family, including her husband. And the former Nepali ambassador to the U.S. said, quote, I'll be fine. And then just said, I just hope I hit it well. Yeah. <laughs> 81 in what? Almost 16,000 feet? Yeah. Yeah. So, and and wasn't concerned at all. <laughs> incredible. And she did hit it well. She crushed the opening tee shot. She was our ceremonial starter. Oh, I love uh, it. Right? Like well, I that's get, the Nepali spirit personified right there. 
hundred percent. So I got to ask you, Ollie, like acute mountain sickness, altitude sickness, finger tingling. Let's go in Oliver's shoes for a second. How the hell do you muster up the strength? And you're also writing a story, right? So you're, you're probably, I think that's also interesting is you, your job is to stay present so that you can take things in and document it to tell the story. But I bet you, you wouldn't be human if you also wouldn't, weren't thinking about your own game and your ability to manage these, you know, conditions and be okay throughout these conditions, but also like hit a golf shot. So how did you balance all that? How did you stay present and maintain a decent mental game? While also like there's legitimate health concerns. I remember with Dr. Rita Thapa, Deepak Acharya, who's one of the heads of the Nepal Golf Association and was our kind of de facto captain on the trip. He was telling me, Oliver, I've been fielding calls from Dr. Thapa's family in like the last week. Everyone's trying to like have me talk her out of going, but there's no way to talk her out. She is, she is on the trip, which was fantastic. You know, I was going up there being like, I'm going to hit this really far up at 15,000 feet. And then you get up there and I'm like, I'm just trying to get the T in the ground without like passing out here. Like you, right. the altitude, Holy. it's it's not that high. It's pretty high, but like we went up fast. And if and if golfers oh, yeah. come over to to experience the course, you'll probably take a few more days to acclimatize than we did. Again, we're going up in Jeeps and like this, like end of day two, we're up at the course already. So we were really feeling it. And Deepak was telling me because Deepak Acharya was also sort of doing the emceeing of the um, award ceremony at the end. And he revealed to me after that he was so out of it and tired that while he was doing that with the award stuff in Nepali, his mind basically went blank. And he was about to introduce his best friend to get an award. And he literally forgot his best friend's name. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what the altitude can can do. Yeah, to yeah messes and, with you. <laughs> oh my God. And, and this was, this by the way, so this is my fourth trip over to Nepal. The previous time I'd been there was in 2019. And they had at that point, the world's highest golf tournament, which was this very funny, uh, a wild trip. It was just one hole at altitude at just under 14,000 feet, sort of near Everest at Kongde Ri. And you'd go up for one hole and then you'd go back and play the other 17 at Kathmandu at 4,000 feet. So it was one hole was at altitude. We're going up in helicopters. And at this point, I'm really nervous because I'm like, wait, to go up from sea level essentially to 14,000 feet in like 15 minutes, that doesn't feel good. Like that's no. dangerous. And so I tracked down this eminent high altitude doctor who basically runs like a institute of high altitude medicine. And he basically said like, you're going to be okay. Just don't get stuck up there. Right. <laughs> like, That's the key. You'll be okay for a few minutes. Just like, do not spend like the night there. I would not advise that. And so, you know, I feel like every time I'm going to Nepal, I'm doing these, uh, I'm doing these things that are pushing me out of my comfort zone. But again, I'm with my friends who are doing it as well. So it's hard for me to to back out. And I love I've it. got I've got an altitude sickness in Denver. Yeah. And same. Playing same. didn't probably help. We were drinking a couple of beers out on the course either. You know, but the minute <laughs> you get out of the cart walk up a hill and you're already way up where, oh my God, it's like, you can't play the next couple holes. Yeah. <laughs> cure so hydration you, um, actually saved me little yeah. plug for cure hydration packets. I drank there two of go. those a day. I historically had terrible altitude sickness and I was totally fine. So hydration I've learned is, is the key of, I would say of all the, the Nepalis I met, there is one golfer though, who for me has, has really personified the spirit of never giving up of every day working hard 
and I know we're going to talk about her at some point, but why yeah. not now? Pratima Sherpa. She is one of the reasons that I just feel such a connection to Nepal is, is and talk about stories. This is the one that um, that I find just so moving every, every time we think about it. So the first time we were in Nepal, it was to write a piece about all of the all of the golf courses there and you know a kind of overview of the golf scene i wrote it for links magazine so i'm there with my buddies miles and vlad and when we're at royal nepal we meet at that point 16 year old girl who everyone tells us we have to meet pratima pratima was 16 at the time she was the number one female golfer in nepal even back then and she lived in a shed on the fourth hole of royal nepal golf club and that's why I was here last time was to chat about five Yeah, I was just going to say, I think episode 51, if you want to go back, mm -hmm. guys, if you're listening, obviously we've come a long way since then, but it doesn't discount how amazing Ollie's stories are. They stay true to time. <laughs> uh, episode 51 is a good one to go back if you want to learn more about Pratima's story, but let's let's keep going. She's the best. So I caddied for Pratima for, for nine holes that very day at Royal Nepal. And we visited the shed. We met her four dogs and her mom and dad and her cat. And it was really inspiring just to see like Pratima's, I think at that point had won 30 golf tournaments. She had like, like unbelievable. And, and she started um, with sticks, right? That's right. And there's an amazing documentary that ESPN made about her. If you Google Pratima Sherpa ESPN, that'll come up. It's called a mountain to climb. It's super cool. Yep. And so the, the spirit of Pratima was just from the get-go, it was just, it was breathtaking. She was every day waking up and hitting balls. Even in the monsoons during the summer, during torrential rain, she's hitting, she's hitting shots. And so we did a GoFundMe for Pratima. I did a Golf Digest piece about her. This wonderful family rode in who had donated to the fundraiser, the Montanos, Tanya and her family. And they actually hosted Pratima in America for a summer. And she played every day. And the next thing we know, she gets her visa sorted and she is studying at Santa Barbara City College. Now, fast forward to the present, she's a senior at Cal State playing on the golf team. How wow. freaking cool Amazing. is that? That's she's incredible. playing awesome. Her swing looks great. She's crushing it in the, in the season right now. And I'm just looking at her and I'm thinking, wow, what a life Pratima has created for herself with that belief. And I it's tell amazing. her this every time we talk, I'm like, no one has got you here, Pratima, except you. Mm. Like literally nobody. It takes a village, right? But like, she is the reason that she is in America having this unbelievable journey. And it's super cool. And I, I want everyone to watch that documentary because if you want some perspective about your own life, about your own golf, about what golf can do to change lives, that is Pratima right there. So Pratima Sherpa, ESPN, it's a, I think it's like a 25 minute doc and oh my God, it's a very moving story. And she's one of my heroes and one of my friends and her story continues. And it's super, super cool to watch her succeed. All right, guys, stay seated, keep those seatbelts fast and we'll get this train right back on track. But first I got something I think every golfer needs. I got two little surprises from my friends at Red Rooster Golf. Okay. One, they make the best performing golf glove in golf as said by my golf spy. Okay. That's one. So, you know, you're going to get an awesome freaking glove, but two, they've got two gloves that I think every golfer needs. One is called the range rooster. And this glove I think is the most underrated glove that they sell because what it does is it saves you money and makes all of your other gloves, the glove you play with 
even better. So let me give you an example. I used to take my, quote, gamer glove, the glove that I play with on the course, to the range because who has more than one glove in their bag other than that crusty one that's rolled up into a ball? You know, I don't, I'm not a tour pro. I don't have multiple gloves. But here's the thing. By having a range glove, it's called the range rooster. They have built-in stretch. It's a white and red glove. It's pretty sweet looking. The red is stretchy and it's built to last. It's literally built to be hit hundreds of balls at the range. And so number one, I don't have to worry about wasting my other glove and it saves me money because I don't have to buy more gloves because I'm using the one at the range for the range and the one for the course on the course. So redroostergolf.com slash train, enter the code train, get 20% off, get yourself a range rooster. And then while you're at it, because it's cold out there, get yourself a good rain glove. You never know when you're going to need it. It's the type of thing that you wish you had when it starts to drizzle or something. Nobody wants to be out there in the rain, but if you are and you get caught, it's good that you got something. Okay. So instead of using the old fashioned foot joy gloves that look like glove my grandpa uses, get the rain rooster. Don't get it twisted. Rain range different. Get the rain rooster. It's got these awesome red roosters on the palm. It gets tackier as it gets more wet. It's the new modern rain glove and they look sweet. Okay. So redroostergolf.com slash train, enter the code train, get 20% off and get yourself the range rooster and the rain rooster or any other gamer glove you want. They got it all. All right, let's get back on track. You brought up a word that I'd love to maybe dig in on a little bit more, which is spirit. Having a spirit is so important. And I feel like you have a really unique perspective because you've encountered people from all over the world. And I think that's one of the coolest parts of travel. I just got back from New Zealand on my honeymoon and I was blown away by the spirit of the Kiwis and the, just the kindness. And I, I get fascinated by this because, you know, nature versus nurture and the power of environment, it's real. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by what is it about a certain group of people? How do they get the spirit that they have? And I'm, I'm curious from you, like, of all the different people from all the different socioeconomic situations and all the different locations in the world that you've met, who do you think encompasses the spirit that you think Americans can best learn from? Or the average mm -hmm. player out there that's just having a bad day, what's something that they can remember that helped them get back on track, per se? Like, yeah. I want to I get to the root of some of this human spirit that I think we can benefit from. I mean, I, I just keep coming back to Nepal. I, I've played in the Mongolian National Open a couple of years ago and and was in the Mongolian golf scene for like a week and a half, which was really cool. And that that pops into my head as well as just like the the nicest people you'd ever meet. And played in Australia a bunch. I played the world. It's 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 a little sticky, but it's the world's longest golf course because every hole is about a hundred miles from the next hole. So it takes oh, five yeah. days to play. So is it the world's longest golf course? Eh, like on paper, sure. You keep coming back to Nepal. And it's just, for me, I, I do just because like every time it's a way of life that is very happy and very, very, very proud of what everybody's got. And on the golf course, there is like everyone else, there's moments of frustration and anger, but like on the whole, I think it's a more kind of calmer way of playing than my American counterparts or, or like me. 
I would say like when I'm playing in Nepal, for some reason, I'm just a little slower. I'm just a little calmer. I'm not getting like, I think I played better every time I played in Nepal because I'm, you know, I'm again, I'm appreciating the story of it. I'm appreciating just the love of the game. I would say it's Nepal. For and they me, don't have a lot comparatively. Yeah. Like it's not the wealthiest country in the world. Why do you think these countries that have so little are so happy? Because they're appreciative. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, uh, look, I mean, there's, there's also, you know, N Nepal has, has all, all wide ranges, J just yeah. like the U S yeah, there's like, there's very rich, uh, uh, business people in Nepal too. And there's yeah. like doctors and lawyers and everything. So there's a lot of poverty in Nepal. So also a lot of people who are doing very well and, and people who get to travel everywhere. So, so it's really, it's not a, you know, it's, it's a huge range of what people have in Nepal, but uh, there is something about like, if you live in Kathmandu, it is a very busy city. It is very noisy and hectic, and it is New York City times maybe 50. And the golf course is an oasis of calm in the frenetic energy of Kathmandu. You step onto a golf course, and I have very rarely seen such a difference between your mental state before and your mental state within five minutes of being on the grounds of Royal Nepal. And a very hilarious thing is you leave the airport, you leave the arrivals terminal of the main airport in Kathmandu, you're in Royal Nepal 11 seconds later. You cross the street and you're in Royal Nepal, which is great. <laughs> so you can really, you can make your tea time if you land like, you know, 10 minutes before when you need to be there. I experienced this in Delhi. I played Delhi Golf Club. And again, Delhi is like Kathmandu, just like so raucous and loud and you... You really just, all your senses are on hyper alert the whole time, just because there's so much traffic and craziness. You get on the golf course and you're like, ah, we've all experienced that, right? We get out of our jobs and whatever, and you're on the course and you can relax. But in Nepal, it really is. In Kathmandu, it is really up to level. And so I see that from all the Nepali golfers in Kathmandu. It's like, they are just so happy when they're at the course. And that's part of it, right? Like, I, I think we look yeah. back on the rounds when we are doing the best, like some of our best rounds, we're not generally like worried and stressed. It's like for whatever reason, you just feel that calm that, that descends on you. And it's not hard to get to that if you're on the old course in St. Andrews in the sunset. It's not that hectic. <laughs> it's not a lot of craziness around. It's uh, it's uh, It's just a beautiful little town. But when you're in a place like Kathmandu, it does feel like a very special it's almost like visiting a temple. And it's ironic because the fifth and sixth holes of Royal Nepal are on an ancient Hindu temple. So you literally are playing on holy land for part of the round. So for that, I got to say that there's lessons to be learned from playing in Nepal. Yeah. Ali, I know we've got a few more minutes left. I wanted to get one more question in a little bit about travel. And, mm. and for our listeners, you know how to do it right. You know how to travel. You're good at it, but you know, as a writer and a filmmaker, you're looking for inspiration, right? You're you're looking to be inspired, and and I can imagine you reflect a lot on these trips. So, you know, they can be great moments for personal growth. I mean, nothing better than having a great trip and coming back feeling like a better, more yeah. alive person. So, what 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 can we learn from Ali when we travel to to get the most out of what you know? There's probably no perfect way to do it, but That's great there's got to be some things you've learned along the way that really make the most. Well, one of the very dorky things that I like to do and do on literally every trip is before in the weeks leading up, 
I will try to learn between 10 and 20 words or phrases in the language that I'm going to. And I'll put them in the notes app on my phone and I will really drill them. And once I get to the country, and again, obviously if this is in a country in a, in a foreign language, the, one of the first things I do if, I, if I'm talking to a friend, I want to find the three to five phrases that no American knows that will make people burst out loud laughing and say, how the hell do you know that? Because for me, that is one of the coolest ways to unlock really making a connection with where you are. And even if you don't speak any of the language, it really is cool. You can even ask this of like, you know, the tour guide or your caddy or whatever. What are, what's like two phrases I should learn that no American knows. And so you should see my, my notes app in my phone. I got all the Mongolian phrases. I got the, the Hindi phrases for India. I got Nepali and I'm not in any way fluid or good, but like, that's a really fun thing I've realized is that that is a cool way to make people laugh and smile and actually make a connection. So that's one thing. What was your phrase for Nepal that well, no nice, American knows? A nice opening is Namaste to Pailai Kostad Show, which is like a very respectful way of saying like, hello, how are you doing? I, I wouldn't say that's like a cool phrase, but again, like if you're going up to uh, to a taxi driver and saying that it's a very respectful thing. And and they're like, oh, I don't have an idiot American tourist here. Maybe he does in me, but at least I can fake it for like a minute. Sure. There's another one that's Moriko Shell Kina Bekeka. And I'm like butchering that pronunciation, but is essentially an idiom that means why do you have a jackal on your shoulder? Which is, I think, a way of saying, like, why the long face? But this is like a weird, it's a weird way of saying it. And then in, uh, I remember in, when I would caddy for Japanese golfers in, uh, on the old course, the, because every Scottish caddy has some working Japanese, everyone, because there's so many Japanese golfers that visit. If you hit an awesome shot, if your golfer hits, it's like a hell of a shot, you go, Subarashi! And that is like, awesome. And you will have your Japanese golfer like bursting out loud. Like, how does my American caddy know how to say super That's, that's amazing. Well, it's so good, Ali, because people always say like, when you go somewhere, hang with the locals, spend time with the locals. But that's yeah. easier said than done. And yeah. so you talking about being thoughtful, spending the time to actually learn something, yeah. which is big. And then on, on the trips, because I'm doing, you know, a lot of them will be for, for golf assignments and stuff. And I actually almost never bring my clubs. I like to travel very, very light. I almost like never bring a check bag, like ever, ever, ever. I'll, you know, I've been to Australia for like a couple of days with just a, a carry on. I think one time in New Zealand, I lugged my clubs over there and it's just, I don't know, it stresses me out having so much checked yeah. baggage crap. So I, I would say really you like, especially if you're going to so many of these countries, if you're going to like a really, really, really expensive country, like you're to Switzerland, like sure you bring your stuff, but like Oh my God, you can just show up with, with next to nothing and buy whatever you need in so many of these places. And, and, uh, I don't know. So for me, I travel really, really light and always just do a carry on. Don't bring my sticks unless I absolutely need to, cause I'll just use a rental set. And yeah, you got to learn some, some words before you go. Cause it just makes people, it just makes people, uh, feel like you made an effort, you know? Well, that's actually a pro tip we've said before, Ali, we, we posted this when we were on my bachelor party in Cabo, a great way to enjoy a bucket list trip is to get rental clubs because then you got something to blame it on if, if you don't play <laughs> you well. play bad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like that. It's like the number one trick in my book. It's like, oh man, I would have been so much better if I had my own clubs. You guys know. <laughs> I got one more question for you before we tell people where to find the article and, and everything. And I just wanted to honor your dad for a second. So mm -hmm. I wanted to provide my condolences. 
I know you lost your dad a few years ago in, in 2020, but I wanted to honor Israel and his memory because I know how big of an impact he had on you, especially getting into the game. What still sticks with you that your dad taught you about golf and or enjoying golf life that we can pass on to people, keep his memory alive, but also anyone out there that might be dealing with grief you know, of mm-hmm. their own? I know it's been tough the last few years as it would be on anyone. So I wanted to end there and, and honor Israel. Oh, thanks, Evan. Yeah, he um, he passed away in November of 2020, had kidney cancer. And it was like, obviously, really, really crappy during the height of the pandemic because, you know, I couldn't see him very much and had to be super careful with not giving him COVID. He was my best friend. He was my golf partner. We played hundreds, if not thousands of rounds together in doing book talks at golf clubs and getting to play some cool places. My whole thing was, I want to get my dad on these courses. And I, and I got to play a couple of really cool courses with him as my guest. And, um, and even now, if I get to play a cool course, I go in the pro shop. I literally like reach for my phone to text my dad to be like, Hey, look, I'm in the pro shop at whatever. And that's happened literally like four or five times in the last couple of months. And it's, it's wild. Um, yeah, he started playing golf when I started playing golf. I was nine and he was like 57 or whatever. And we just learned the game together, fell in love with the game together, would trade a million golf stories. He came over to St. Andrews a ton of times while I was caddying. I got to caddy once for him on the old course in like an official capacity. I was telling all my friends to caddy for my dad tomorrow. It's going to be great. It was like one of the worst caddy rounds I've ever done. He questioned everything, <laughs> questioned every piece of advice. <laughs> I was like, I was like, hey, we got, we got, we got to lay up here. He's like, what? Wait, wait, give me my three win. I'm like, that, not the, not, not the right way. Probably the toughest caddy round I've ever had was for dad. And that was another reason I needed this trip to Nepal. This was like the first major big trip I did since the pandemic hit. And the last big trip I've been on was was Nepal for that other tournament. And so I, I remember, guys, I was in this temple called Muktanath, which is right kind of midway between Pokhara and Lomanthang. So it was our sort of our, our stopover before getting to Lomanthang. It's about 12,000 feet up, and it is a very special place for both Buddhists and Hindus, but specifically for Hindus. And for Hindus in Nepal, it is every single person tries to get there once in their life. So it is like visiting, I don't know, the Taj Mahal. You need to go once in your life. And mukti in Nepali means uh, release. So it's like a release from whatever is bothering you. So we get up there and I'm with all these excited Nepalis, 35 other golfers and me, and everyone is so pumped to be visiting this temple. And everyone had empty water bottles to fill up their bottles with holy water to bring back for their family to drink from. It was like a real, uh, a real tradition there. And I'm going up with them and, and I'm like, oh, this is really beautiful. This is really beautiful. And I'm amongst so much spirituality. I do this, this run of the water taps. There's like something like 85 holy taps that are spewing out water. And you run under them. It's freezing cold. You dunk in a, in a pool. It's really freezing cold. And then I'm, I've been up there like 20 minutes and it hits me. I'm like, dad would be so proud that I'm on this golf adventure, that I'm back in it and doing what I love and, and getting to getting to be with these with these like awesome Nepali golfers. And it just overwhelmed me. And I think it was the spirituality. It was just, I, you feel really close to something up there. And I just started bawling. 
it just like the floodgates opened. I could not stop crying. It's like embarrassing. I'm in front of all my and Nepali friends and I like literally cannot even get the words out. And Dr. Rita Thapa, that 81 year old who was our ceremonial starter, I like somehow choked out an explanation of, and she said, come into this room, light a candle for your dad and think of happy memories of him. And that for me was just, that was like a, a trip defining moment. It is, uh, I still think about that day. I turned in the article and I thought it literally turned it in on the day that he had passed the anniversary of it and thought wow. of him. And, and so for me, bringing it back to what golf is, golf is about something, you know, sharing with people you love. And for me, every time I play now, I think of my dad, I'm sure all, all of us listening think of rounds we've, we've shared with people we love, whether it be friends or partners or our, or our family members and golf's a part of, all of our lives. And there's something about golf. It's not bowling. It's not tennis. It's not basketball. It's five to six hours. It is a long time and it's outdoors. And you just have conversations with people that we just, especially these days that we very rarely have. That's like one of the reasons I love golf. It's why we all love golf. And uh, I will continue going to like interesting, unexpected places to find more golf because for some reason, that's what makes me happy. And Ali, golf is, a, it's a spiritual game, right? There's a spiritual element to it. And when we all start realizing that, it's just, it just helps us mm -hmm. get more connected. Yep. And, and if you don't, us, if you don't think golf- Get a better place. Yeah. If you question whether golf has like some, some kind of spiritual component, like play the old course at sunset. Playing St. Yeah. Andrews at sunset, where the course is lit up like a movie set and hares are running around the course and the wind has dropped and it's just silent. You're playing back towards town and you feel close to something. Whatever and, that uh, is, you're going to feel yeah. something. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, Ali, I'll end with this. You know, my greatest joy, I would say Cermak would probably share this, is that people listen to our show and say they rediscover the love of the game. They finally learn to enjoy the ride again. And mm. I, I will say to everybody listening, your article does the same thing. Tell people where to find the article and where to find you, because you know, I've always been a fan of your writing, your book, American Caddy at St. Andrews, one of my favorite books. I still recommend it to a lot of people. Your writing really captures the essence of why we love this game. So tell people where to find the article so they can feel that if they need it. Thanks, guys, and I and I think it really is about uh, it really is about collecting after dinner stories, isn't it? That's what it, oh. that's what it's all about. To to get more info on playing the course, the uh, Nepal Golf Association set up an email. It's mustanggolfcourse at gmail.com. So all one word, mustanggolfcourse at gmail.com. And to find the article, you can just Google Golf Digest Nepal. Those three words will be the first thing that comes up. I hope you read the article because it is it is a trip of a lifetime to get over to Nepal. And there are seven fantastic golf courses there with very friendly golfers. You'll be welcomed into the community. If you're going to go over there and do some trekking, you got to go also go play some golf in Nepal. Love it. Right. Well, Ali, thanks as always for hopping aboard. We're always a big fan of yours. So next adventure, we'll have to come bring you back and share those insights for the partnering community but would be happy to thank you for having me guys great to see you hey guys this is evan real quick before you hop off the train i got something for you it's called the train of thought it's our new email newsletter would you like to get one nugget insight or thought that we're pondering every week that could help keep you sharp and help your mental game go to the 
and subscribe to the Train of Thought newsletter today. It's really the best way to enjoy the ride. See you guys.